This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns from her vacation tomorrow. Today is an important day in pandemic recovery in Ontario's long-term care homes. As of today, March 14th, general visitors under five years of age are able to resume visits, and the number of visitors at a time per resident increases from three to four, including caregivers. And all residents, regardless of their COVID vaccination status, will also be able to enjoy social overnight absences. In addition to these changes, as of today, mandatory COVID vaccination or test policies end for workers in long-term care, as well as in hospitals, schools, and childcare settings. March 14th was actually the original revised date for all long-term care workers in the province to get their third-shot booster of COVID vaccine. But now there are no more mandatory COVID vaccination policies in long-term care. It almost sounds like normal, with the exception of masking, which will continue to be mandated in nursing homes until the end of April, even after next Monday, when most indoor settings in the province will no longer require face coverings. If you have a loved one in long-term care, we would like to hear from you. How are today's changes affecting their well-being and how have your loved ones managed through Omicron when even with boosters and fourth shots, nursing home residents were contracting COVID-19 and some were dying after getting the virus. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's get the Zoomer squad involved in this conversation. Peter Mugridge is senior editor of Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP. And Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Welcome, squad. Hi, Jane. Bill, I'll begin with your comments about today's changes, where we're at now in long-term care during uh, just, I guess, we're a few days past the second anniversary of the COVID crisis. Well, we've been talking to a lot of our CARP members, and there's really very mixed reactions to this. Some people think it's much too fast. Uh, Other people are so pleased to know that they're going to have more access to their loved ones, and their loved ones are going to have more access to them. The government is calling it cautious. Some people think it's too much uh, uh, too soon. And I guess what we really know is that we don't know yet and what's going to happen a few weeks uh, from now. uh, We're holding our breath. Certainly it is good news, though, Bill, that more people may visit each resident and that residents can leave for a night to maybe stay with family in a different setting. Absolutely. The social isolation that uh, older Ontarians have uh, gone through in the last two years has been very traumatic, very hard on their uh, mental health, uh, both both the residents themselves and the families. So uh, hopefully that... uh, uh, part of the, the the problem will ease uh, for people, but there still is real fear about whether or not this virus has really been uh, beaten and that we won't have a resurgence like we did the last time we thought we were going to be opening. Right. Uh, Peter Mugridge, what are your thoughts on this day? Well, you know, it's, it's such a positive uh Sign. You know, I, I don't have anyone in long-term care. I, I did until a few years ago, but I, I don't know anyone now. So, like, I, I don't have the same worries that uh, people with uh, family in those homes w- will have. But I just think this is a huge step forward. Um, it seems like, um, you know, two years, you, you can't leave the house without wondering if you have your mask, if you've been vaccinated, can I go there? What do I have to do when I get there? You know, are they open? Just all that kind of... Um, aggravation that comes with the restrictions and the mandates is lifted off our shoulders now and it's a great thing and um 
you know, um, families that were divided by along vaccination lines can get together again and and not, you know, bury the hatchet. And so I I think this is all very positive, Jane. And it seems um, like even if if the virus does come back in any way, it's just it's just going to be masks back, you know, and not not shutdowns or uh, further restrictions, it looks like. Daryl Bricker sitting in for David Kravitz again this week. And thank you for your time, Daryl. Long-term care, I mean, it's been such uh, a huge crisis point uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, we all want to believe that it's come to an end finally. Well, I I, I will go with Bill on this. Uh, The the issue is that there is really no unanimity of opinion on any of these things. Um, So if you go back a year and a half ago, we did have a certain amount of unanimity on, of opinion on how we should be dealing with all of this. And over the course of the space of the last 18 months, that broke down. So we have a real diversity of opinion on this. Uh, so there will be people who will see this as, uh, you know, going too quickly uh, and taking unnecessary levels of risk with the most vulnerable population uh, that we have in the province. And then there are other people who are going to say, uh, you know, we probably kept the clamps down for too long and we were doing more damage. Uh, for the reasons that were articulated before in terms of people's, uh, you know, social experience at a, at, at a time in their life when they're going to want to have the most experience that they can have with their family. So uh, this is probably going to run out in, in a situation in which it's going to be a form of managed risk. And when you, when you take a look at public opinion right now and how they look at this disease, that's how they see it. They don't view it as a light switch. It's a dimmer switch kind of goes up and it kind of goes down, but it's managed risk. It's not something that well, we can shut down or turn on on a dime. It's something that we're, the public basically feels that we're going to have to learn to live with and we're going to have to modify as we go along. So I think the announcements would be seen as, as generally good news, but um, people would be greeting it with a certain level of caution and trepidation about the potential risks that we're being asked to take. It's important to note that the mandatory COVID vaccination or test policies end in terms of a directive from the provincial government. But if owners of individual nursing homes want to carry on with making sure that all their staff is boosted and, uh, you know, for those who uh, have medical exemptions are taking tests, Bill, uh, you wonder, and we don't know at the moment yet, um, you know, what percentage of nursing homes in the province will still make a COVID vaccination mandatory. Well, you're right, Jane, and that's one of the real concerns. You'll recall at the beginning of uh, COVID and even before, one of the problems we had was the the uh, lack of, of consistency in the way government rules were uh, enforced in long-term care homes. And now that the government rules are being lifted, will the long-term care homes still uh, give uh, proper attention to making sure that uh, their homes are uh, safe. So a lot of people are concerned about the fact that that uh, that there's not uh, more uh, control and and uh, and uh, assurance that your loved ones are going to be safe in those places. I would like to get our Zoomer squad to react to these stats. So in terms of uh, the Omicron variant over the last month or so, maybe five weeks, when we look at the chart, and you can find this online, it's Ontario government data, on February 9th in long-term care, there were almost 1,600 active cases of COVID, uh, despite the fact that fourth shots were already being given. By the time we get to March 5th, 6th, we're looking at about 200 cases a day, and now we're almost down to zero. If you look at the deaths, uh, the highest death day in long-term care during the Omicron variant was February 15th, when there were 20 deaths of residents who had contracted COVID. Now, we haven't seen any deaths in long-term care um, since about March 3rd, when it looks like we had two deaths in long-term care. Peter, this, you know, in terms of a reflection of what's happening in the rest of society, it, it very much falls in line with that. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, I guess it's why they're, they're lifting, um, you, know, you know, making it easier to visit nursing homes, because 
Um, although um, Dr. Moore was saying, like, um, it's it seems that, um, you know, the, the number of cases are much higher in society than um, we know about because so many are, aren't reported. In, in nursing homes, every single case would be reported. So mm-hmm. the, these are very accurate numbers, I think, and they show a steady decline that, um, you know, it doesn't mean you can't go in there if you're if you're feeling symptoms or, you know, you, you need to wear a mask still. But it just shows, you know, we're on the path to getting where we want to be. And, um, you know, the numbers don't lie. Daryl, as a pollster, how are Canadians feeling? I know this is a broad question, but in terms of long-term care, I know there have been polls throughout the pandemic that after, especially what happened in the first and second waves, people our age do not want to end up in long-term care down the road. And then that's also factually what, what's going on. Most people age in place, so they, they, they try to stay in their own homes for as long as they possibly can. So the, that's why the population that's in longer-term care is especially vulnerable. Uh, but uh, I, I would say that where Canadians are on this right now is uh, they're pretty well worn out. Um, so what we're coming out of this with is not that sense of joy we might have been feeling last year, when we started coming back out of this and, and before the Omicron um, a variant uh, rolled in. Uh, instead, we're feeling a sense of just being worn out and just, you know, as I said before, you know, almost like a, this cautious sense that we have to get back and re-engaged with our lives. But there's no joy associated with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason is because we're, as I said before, we're worn out. But also they're worried that, you know, if something else is going to happen, we're going to go back again. So there's a, a bit of confidence building that has to take place here at, at all levels in order to uh, get people to feel like they can go out with some degree of safety and that they can, that the experience will actually be worth it, that we're not taking any un- unnecessary risks associated with, uh, with re-engagement. But uh, it's going to be harder this time than even what it was, as I said before, when you go back here where people were stepping out of their homes with uh, a sense that, uh, you know, this was past us. We're not feeling that way, no. Well, and especially during uh, the third, you know, once we got into last summer, I'm sort of losing track here, but the summer of 2021 and into the fall, it sort of felt like good times were here again. Omicron came along and uh, all of the shutdowns, the lockdowns went back into place, including for long-term care. And that was so demoralizing for people who have loved ones in nursing homes. And again, we are going to switch topics here in a moment. But if you do want to call in to talk about um, whether some of these policy changes in terms of mandatory COVID vaccination for staff, test policies, are they ending in the individual nursing home where your loved one is a resident? And how are lifting some of the restrictions, allowing more visitors, allowing uh, your aging mother or grandmother to come out for a Saturday night to go to a family party, sleep over at a family member's home and be taken back the next day. How is all of this jiving in your life? The numbers are 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866-740-4740. Bill, just from personal experience, I, you know, my late mother-in-law, um, who ultimately succumbed to Alzheimer's disease when she was in earlier stages. That was such a nice time to be able to get her, help her get dressed up, you know, check her out of the facility, go to a family party, let her experience a little bit of normalcy like the way it was before the nursing home. That's so important for people. It is absolutely. And, and, and you're right. That kind of social activity uh, is important, especially with uh, folks with uh, Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. In fact, we know that when they don't get that kind of attention, they don't get that kind of opportunity for personal interaction with family members, they go downhill much more uh, uh, quickly. So uh, people are looking forward to having that, uh, having that opportunity now to do that again and uh, uh, to make their, their loved ones more, more happy in the, in the situation. And the, you know, the concern now is, you know, uh, even long-term care homes have been offered their fourth booster. Will they take it up? Will the homes make sure that they're available? Uh, will there be an uptake? Is there a, even going to be avail- availability? Those are the kind of 
sort of positive questions people are asking now. Okay, we can we can loosen up a little bit, but what are the things we're going to continue to do to protect our loved ones? Well, masking certainly uh, will carry on until at least April 27th. That is the date that has been set. Peter, does that seem reasonable based on the way that we're going so far? Yeah, and and in a long term care setting, like I. I don't see why during flu season next year, um, you know, masking can't be a, a, a thing anyway. You know, like, I, it seems reasonable to ask people if they're going into a setting where um, the greater majority of people have uh, compromised health conditions, that wearing a mask is just sort of a, a you know, a, it's a no-brainer. And, and, and I think we'll see masks stay longer in places like long-term care and um, especially during flu seasons and, uh, you know, see, just any time there's an outbreak of anything, I, I, I think it's, it's more than reasonable and I think people will be more than happy to go along with it because it's not that great a hardship. And um, if you're, you're protecting everyone in a home, in a, in a sort of, a, you know, an environment, a contained environment, then, um, you know, it, it's more than reasonable to Daryl, final question to you on long-term care. Uh, what about masking? Are we, you know, as a whole, it doesn't seem people are so used to it now. Uh, certainly, I don't think that people would object if, if masking continued in long-term care and hospital settings beyond the end of April. No, I don't think it's going to it's going to be a, a difficult thing to uh, to get people to comply in long-term care homes for all the reasons that your other guests have offered up. Uh, you know, we're going to switch topics now, but uh, great to get your takes on all of the changes today in nursing homes in the province. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer, Chief Policy Officer of CARP. And Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Always through the lens of our Zoomer listeners, the 45-plus crowd, let's get your takes now on the latest candidates in the race for federal conservative leader. It does not mean a federal election is imminent. Far from it. They won't be deciding until September 10th. Uh, Bill, I'll begin with you. We have five candidates so far. Two high-profile candidates joined the race uh, in Patrick Brown and Jean Charest in recent days. Uh, Your thoughts at this point? Well, certainly uh, Patrick Brown's entry has intrigued the members uh, of CARP in his writing. I've already heard uh, from them that they're, uh, they're very interested in his position. One of the things that he did as a mayor, they tell me, is... uh, uh, hold uh, hold costs down, which meant that many of the things that they were expecting to have happen as CARP members in support of uh, older uh, Ontarians in in their in their city were not uh, take that he had a very conservative approach, and they're worried that that might continue on the on the national level. Uh, on the other hand, he's personally very very popular. Uh, they like him. They like to hear him. And there's there's a lot of interest now right across Ontario in his entry. And 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 from my point of view, uh, it's really raised the interest in the entire uh, conservative campaign now that he's uh, uh, come into the race. Bill, speaking of, from a Nova Scotian's perspective, though, will somebody like a Patrick Brown resonate in the East and in the West? Well, certainly, uh, certainly the people in the East are looking for new leadership on the national level. They don't think that the previous conservative uh, leadership paid any attention to their part of the country, even in our recent uh, Nova Scotia election where conservatives uh, came to came to power. They disassociated themselves from the national party very, uh, uh, very quickly and very strictly during the whole campaign. So. Whoever is uh, uh, elected, and at the moment, uh, Brown seems to have more profile in this part of the country, in fact, right across the country, than all the other candidates, except maybe Charest. Interesting. Peter Mugridge, yes, certainly for Zoomers. Jean Charest is a familiar face, if not a little bit older, as we all are. Yeah. I, you know what? I thought he was older than he is. He, he's only 63, but I guess he was very young when he was mm-hmm. um, he was in uh, Mulroney's cabinet. I, I think he, I seem to remember he was one of the youngest ever, if not the youngest ever cabinet minister. But uh, so he is 63. He's got the, the experience, but he doesn't, he's not, he's not like Biden old. So, um, you know, uh, you know, he's in a, he's in a sweet spot, I think, you know, like, um, 
in terms of, you know, people remembering him from the old days and then just looking back to what he did in Quebec. Um, uh, so, so, and and he's sort of like um, reminiscent of a Mulroney conservative, where you know, try to get the whole party united as one rather than playing off certain divisions. Um, you know, they they might see him that way. So, you know, the 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 experience that comes with age, the um, the experience that you know he's he can look back further before reform, how it was with conservatives then. And plus, he's not an old man at 63. So, no. um, I, you know, it seems to me he has the inside track, but, uh, you know, it, it's very early days. Let's go over to Daryl Bricker at Ipsos Public Affairs. What are Canadians, um, do you have a read on in terms of a favorite candidate so far among Canadian Conservatives? Well, let me be the skunk of the garden party here. Um, the, the truth is that there's a difference between winning the Conservative Party in winning an election. And uh, Patrick Brown, uh, as a candidate, um, uh, may have some uh, residual roots from the time that he ran as the, you know, the leader of the Ontario Party, um, uh, Progressive Conservative Party, but um, they couldn't get rid of him fast enough when they did. And on a national audience, well, probably that would be the only thing that they remember about Patrick Brown. He may have done a fine job as the mayor of Brampton or whatever, but this is a story he's going to have to tell uh, to the to the the wider membership of the uh, of the uh, of the Conservative Party. Uh, he's an Ontario guy. Uh, yeah. You know, you need to be able to run it on uh, a national race. I mean, uh, leadership campaigns are really not about appealing to the press gallery or appealing to uh, uh, the general population. They're about pe- appealing to the party membership. Uh, remember, that's why Aaron O'Toole lost his job. It was, he was, wasn't able to hold his caucus together. Mm-hmm. He actually did reasonably, you know, well, uh, in, in the, uh, last election campaign, even though he lost, but he, he lost the, the party. So the problem that both of those candidates that, uh, uh, my colleagues have cited is neither one of them are part of what the modern conservative party is about, which is really the, uh, the Harper version of the conservative party. The Brian Mulroney version of the, of the party left a long time ago. Right. Um, and, uh, that idea, you know, that they're, you know, these, that this huge audience of progressive conservatives, where they're economically conservative and that they're progressive on social issues, they may think that, that that's, that's, that's what works, but that's not the current party. And by the way, those other candidates, Patrick Brown or, um, or, um, uh, uh Jean Charest, were basically liberal on both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they weren't, they weren't uh, that type of progressive conservatives that I just described. So the issue will be, how do those two candidates do well with the Stephen Harper party? Mm-hmm. I think that's a tough sell. So, so Pierre it, Polyev, yeah, is it his better align with it? Probably it, at the moment has a better chance. So it would be Pierre Polyev's race to lose. Yeah, uh, well, I think so. I mean, he had the earliest, he had the earliest start. He's got like 40, uh, endorsements from his, his, uh, his, uh, his caucus, which was the problem for Aaron O'Toole. Um, he, uh, um, is, uh, certainly better aligned with the machinery of the party, which is essentially what, what you need to be able to, to win these days in terms of a party leadership campaign. Obviously has the money or he wouldn't be running. And he obviously has a strong organization or he wouldn't be running. The other two are going to try and catch up. I know Patrick Brown had a pretty good run and, you know, won the Ontario leadership, but he's going to have to replicate that at a national level. It's a very different game. And Jean Charest is trying to build this from the ground up based on a, a version of the party that's probably 20 years out of date. So that doesn't mean that they won't win, but, but the challenge is really big. And by the way, listening to the Ottawa Press Gallery on this, you're going to miss it. Because <laughs> they, they're sort of pining for that version of what, uh, uh, conservative or progressive conservative was back in, you know, during the Mulroney yeah. era in the, in the 1980s. But it really is, you know, back with shoulder pads and dynasty. Yes. The, the country's changed too much. Now, April 19th is the deadline for candidates to declare that they are in the race. After that, um, we will start to see, Daryl, those polls where they show each candidate how well they would do up against Justin Trudeau. We'll start to see that, right? And and how valuable will that information be for Conservative Party members? It hasn't proven to be that valuable, to be honest, because Peter McKay, bested Aaron O'Toole on that number right through the entire leadership campaign last time around. This really is about winning a group of people who've gone to the trouble of buying a party membership, 
either by being assisted in doing it or or uh, you know signing up themselves. These are the most motivated conservatives in the country. They're the only people voting. And what's happening in the course of of the, the campaign and what the candidates communicate about their values to these uh, to these uh, to, to these voters is the thing that's going to matter the most. Uh, sure, people would like to elect a winner, but uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole lost a vote with his party on climate change. And trying to run a national campaign these days, saying that you're against climate change, is a tough sell. <laughs> it's a very tough sell, and he lost that vote. So that tells you the kinds of people that are going to be voting in this election and in this leadership campaign, and it's not the general population. Great discussion, as always. Zoomer Squad, thank you all for your time today. Thanks, Jane. Thank you, Jane. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer, Chief Policy Officer of CARP, Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Jane for Libby, and still to come here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, we go to our reporter on the ground in Ukraine, Majid El-Shafi of One Free World International, joins us next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns from vacation tomorrow. It is the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. As of earlier today, some 2.7 million people have fled Ukraine since Putin's forces began their attack two and a half weeks ago. About 7 million people within Ukraine are displaced. Zoomer media friend Majid Al-Shafi of One Free World International is in Ukraine right now east of Lviv, having started his journey in Poland, where most of the refugees have arrived. I spoke with Majid earlier this morning and asked him about his journey so far. First of all, we landed in Poland, and we immediately went to the shelters there. We went to the border to see the situation. And uh, the, the border in, in Poland, uh, just alone in Poland, is around 100,000 refugees per day. Uh, in total, we passed uh, two million and a half refugees in just uh, in a matter of two weeks. Uh, uh, many of them will cross by foot, uh, around 60% of them were crossed by foot because the cars would not work anymore or there is a huge lineup. And if some of them would walk for 10 miles until reaching uh, Poland. And just two weeks ago, uh, 10 days ago, uh, around uh, six Ukrainian died from cold. Uh, now it's getting warmer, so thank God for that. But uh, it's just dire situation. When we come in, they have to go to the shelters. They have to go to refugee camps or welcome centers. And, uh, and they simply have to start their life from the beginning. The look on the face is somebody lost, lost everything. They lost their history, their country. They left their loved ones. I, I, I found a little girl was saying goodbye to her father. He was taking her and the mother to the border, but he had to return back to fight for his country. Right. And that really broke my heart. Um, you know, I mentioned to you, my husband's family is Ukrainian. We have family there. And his cousin, his male cousin, actually rode his bike 30 kilometers uh, to the Poland-Ukraine border while his wife and kids walked. Uh, and he had the suitcases on his bike. And that was faster than waiting in that massive lineup in the first couple of days. Um, I can just imagine the heartbreak you're seeing as people are saying goodbye to each other, not knowing when or worst case scenario, if they'll see each other again. That's correct. And, and it's happening over and over and over. And it, it's, uh, I believe that the situation will get worse before it will get better, simply because Russia now start to widen their attacks, uh, start to reach to more uh, civilian areas, to more cities, even start to target uh, schools and hospitals, maternity hospitals where life's supposed to start, not to end. You are just east of Lviv today. Are you hearing the air raid sounds? Are you uh, hearing any explosions, shelling, gunfire, anything like that? 
Yes, absolutely. We've been through at least five so far, uh, around 4 a.m., 6 a.m. Uh, explosions, uh, sirens. We have to run to the basement. We have to run to underground shelters. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the days I decide that I won't spend the night with a, in a shelter, the refugees. And I wanted to see what they're seeing. I wanted to feel what they're fe- feeling. I want to taste what they're eating. I wanted to feel the cold flora beneath me and the very uncomfortable mattress. And it's not that I was a refugee myself. I was a refugee from back home in Egypt, and I know what this feels. But I was just thirsty to see at least glimpses of humanity in the middle of that. And, and quite honestly, it even broke my heart even further. I had an opportunity to stay in a hotel, and I refused. I just needed to stay with the refugees and to see what they are feeling. And, and what are they feeling? What did you experience when you slept overnight? Um sharing a space with them? What kinds of feelings the are they expressing? It's the same look of loss, of fear. And of course, every time the silence goes off, every time we hear explosions, you wonder if you are the next. Uh, and and to wake up in the middle of the night at 4 a.m., you know, just running to a shelter because you don't know if this missile will hit you or not. No civilians now. It's not a matter of military target anymore. It can be civilians anywhere, any, anyhow. So uh, to, to see the fear, and but in the middle of all of this, while we were in a shelter, there was two kids playing together, brother, brother, and sister. And the brother made a blanket to his sister, and his sister would stand up on the blanket, and he would just walk with the blanket and, and try to play with her, and she would laugh so loud. And here, this kids, the future of Ukraine, really, and the future of humanity, and it just even in the middle of darkness, even in the worst wars, you can see the best of mankind and you can see the worst of mankind. And this was just a glimpse of hope and happiness. Where are you off to next? Next, uh, well, I would like to go see the military hospitals and the wounded soldiers. I think it's extremely important to see the pain. Many of us in the West believe that military people or soldiers just war machines, they're not. They're fathers, they're sons, they're uh, uh, uncles, they're, you know, they're, they're brothers. So I would like to see the, the, the military hospitals. I would like to encourage the soldiers, but also to see what medical supplies that the hospital needs so we can provide it to them as one free world international, as a human rights organization. So you are there to hear the stories, to talk to the people, to report back to us here in Toronto and elsewhere around the world. Uh, what is the other mission when you when you mentioned One Free World International? What is the mission of your organization by having you there? Humanitarian aid. So basically, we were able to deliver at least three locations, one in Poland and two in Ukraine, humanitarian aid. So from diapers to powder milk, to uh, uh, bottles of water, mattresses to sleep on, uh, batteries for energy, uh, um, cans, like uh, food cans, uh, all of the above. So we've been able to deliver all of the symmetry and aid to the, to the most in need. When you're talking to people there, and uh, presumably you have a translator with you, when you're talking to people, um, what what are they feeling? What are they sensing is the immediate future and the long-term future for Ukraine? Do they feel that Putin is in this for the long haul? Uh, what are the expectations? They are in fear. And quite honestly, the most that comes out of them immediately, besides that they are in a shock, they never thought that really Russia would go ahead with the threat, even though it was all the intelligence report that was presented months and months ago. But they were, they, the most that came out of them was how much they are disappointed from the West of leaving them behind, uh, how much they felt that there is lack of, of cooperation. Yes, tensions is important, but the effect of the sanctions will be on the long, on the long run. Uh, sanctions is something that they, they appreciate, but it's not making any effect, at least not on the military uh, side. They are disappointed from, from the, the need to rejection 
for no-fly zone over Ukraine. They believe that they can win this war, but they cannot do it without controlling the air. So I believe that they feel that they're left behind and they wanted the West to do more. They want the West to do more. Um, In terms of the strategy of the Russian forces, I mean, we can see from the map where they've started, how they're infiltrating from the north, the northeast and from the east. Um, In terms of your experience, how long do you feel it will be? Is it inevitable that Russia will begin to take over uh, the Kyivs and the Odessas uh, before moving even farther west? The the, the Russian strategy is not something we don't know Mm -hmm. and we didn't witness before. So the Russian strategy, the minute that they lose, they fight in a very coward way. They don't fight one-on-one. They fight from the air from far away. So, and when they don't win, so Kiev is not falling. And really the Ukrainian soldiers and people proven that they can defend their city and they can fight, uh, 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 even with a very limited weaponry. Uh, so, and that's disappointing Putin and his government. And as, as any tyrants will do, and we saw this Russian did the same thing in Syria, Mm-hmm. And Chishian, when they will level the city, you know, before they send the troops, they will just bombard everywhere from hostels to civilian areas to military areas. Uh, and we see them doing this here because they are not succeeding and it's not going according to their plan. They was hoping that this would be just two, three days thing and here could fall. When they didn't succeed, now they become more and more aggressive and more and more lying about many, many facts. Majid, are you scared for your life? Uh, I I would tell you what I'm scared of. I'm scared of waking up in the morning not doing my duty as a human being. I'm not scared to die. I'm scared to live a life that is empty from any meaning from helping others. I love what I do, and I will live and I will die for what I do. And as a former refugee... And knowing what these people are going through, what will they experience in terms of after effects from all of this? The, 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 the um, PTSD is something, and the mental health, especially for the kids. Uh, uh, you know, I watch the kids when the siren sounds, uh, and I watch them how they are in horror, and they will run to their mom, and they will hug each other, and they will run to the shelter. There will be a long mental. Uh, effect on the, especially the kids, never mind the adults, but especially the kids uh, 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 will suffer a great deal if we don't act quickly to protect them. And that's why part of our humanitarian mission was toys, simply to bring toys to the kids so they can play, so they can enjoy their time, they can just forget. And, and I give this white teddy bear to one of the girls, mm-hmm. and you have no idea, it's like you give her a palace or something. You know, she just played with this white rabbit uh-huh. all over the night. It just She's so happy with that. So it's very important that we care about the children and the future of Ukraine. And you've seen this behavior in Afghanistan, common behavior among children, how they react in situations like this. Absolutely, because kids is the most pure souls, uh, the most innocent souls. So they are the same if, they, if you are black, white, or brown, if you are Afghanis or Ukrainian or whatever refugee you are, kids will always be kids. They will be always the angels of God on earth. Majid, thank you so much for your time. Please stay safe, and we'll continue to be in touch with you here at Zoomer Radio and Zoomer Media. Thank you for having me. Majid Al-Shafi of One Free World International, my conversation with him earlier today. Majid is also part of a special program on Putin's war against Ukraine tonight on the Zoomer TV on our sister station, Vision TV. Still to come here on Fight Back, Jane for Libby, Zelensky's leadership and Putin's escalating aggression. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow. We continue our conversation above Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine with Peter Storin, president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, Toronto branch, and Daniel Belland, professor and director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Hello to you both. Good afternoon. Peter, for those who did not attend yesterday's Toronto rally outside the U.S. consulate, tell us about the turnout and the messaging. Well, thank you, Jane. We've had we had thousands of people, uh, anywhere from five thousand plus. At one point, we covered all of Spadina uh, from uh, from Queen Street uh, all the way beyond College Street. Um, it was a very big turnout. Obviously, there was a lot of support and a lot of emotion. But the message was very clear. We were thankful. Uh, we ended in front of the U- U.S. consul. We were very thankful to our U.S. and American friends for their support today. But clearly, um, we believe it's not enough. So the ask was for a no-fly zone. I'm very happy to announce right now that the Estonian parliament just announced they are supporting. They are the first NATO country that's actually supporting a no-fly zone. Senator uh, Rob Foreman, uh, Portman, I'm sorry, yesterday a senior senator in the U.S. asked for the same thing. So more and more, and there's a group of generals now, retired generals, um, that are saying that that is actually doable and it would be the right thing to do. So we believe the tide has turned, people are getting the message, and Ukrainian civilians and children really need to be protected. It is not enough to just stand back and watch thousands of people being annihilated on a daily basis. Daniel, based on the developments that Peter's outlining there, how likely is this to happen, that there will be a no-fly zone over Ukraine? I think it's unlikely to happen uh, now, just because the risk of uh, military escalation. Uh, Russia, of course, is a major nuclear power, um, and we don't want to start a, a direct war with, uh, with Russia, and that's not just the case of Canada, but also our, our NATO allies, including the United States. So I think we should support uh, people in uh, in Ukraine. We should send military aid. We should do everything we can um, to to help the Ukrainian people, to help refugees. Uh, there are a lot of things we can do, but direct military confrontation with uh, with Russia uh, is something that we have to avoid. There have been four rounds of talks now, Daniel, with nothing to show. They took a pause today after some video chatting. What are the purpose of these talks where Putin's representatives, at least so far, refuse to make any concessions? Yes, it's, it's difficult to, uh, to say what the Russian strategy is at, at this point. They, they, uh, they are not willing to compromise. And, uh, and, and while thousands of civilians are, are being killed, have been killed so far in this conflict, um, I think that uh, we need to... Uh, uh, to really beef up our, our sanctions uh, against Russia. We've seen also private businesses leaving Russia. Uh, I think that we should keep the pressure on um, and, and also make sure that countries like China uh, don't start to support Russia militarily because we know that Russia is asking uh, military support from, from China and we have to prevent that uh, from happening. And we have to further isolate uh, Russia, which is already isolated, but we need to do more. Uh, uh, Peter, are we seeing agitation uh, from Vladimir Putin that this is not going nearly as quickly as what he was hoping for? And how is this affecting uh, the mood in terms of his aggressiveness? Well, clearly, um, you know, it, it is not going to plan. I mean, uh, I, just just watching CNN and some of the talking heads, there's now three generals, former generals, uh, that have that have changed their tune. Mark Hurdling, for one, from the beginning said, this is not going to take uh, days, this is going to be a conflict that's going to last a long time, because you've got a country of 40 million people. A country of 40 million people would need probably 10 times the military that the, that the Russians are able to throw into Ukraine. So what they could do, they could do a lot of devastation, which is what they're doing. They can terrorize the people, very good at that. And they're very good at killing innocent civilians, thinking that they could break the will of the people. But they won't be able to do it. Mr. Putin now is beginning, most likely beginning to realize that. So he's using the, the, the context that, well, you can't 
really do anything, NATO, because we'll just have a nuclear war. I firmly don't believe that Mr. Putin and his henchmen are suicidal. They do not want to, but that is their talking point. We can see it on the social media this morning. The Russian bots are out attacking, saying, no, no, no fly zone equals nuclear war. Well, that didn't happen in Syria when uh, when Americans shot down Russian planes over Syria. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen in Bosnia when Russian planes were shot down. Um, so we firmly believe that that's not what's going to happen in this case. Uh, we need to deal with the Russian bear now. Otherwise, 20 kilometers uh, from the Polish border yesterday, 10 bombs were dropped. What would happen if it went on the other side? All of a sudden, the West is going to say, oh, now we need to get involved. We've been saying from the very beginning, the West and most countries are late to the game. They should have dealt with Putin a long time ago. But now's the time to finish off this evil empire. Really, it is. Daniel, what's your take on how effective this nuclear bullying uh, tactic is for Putin? Well, I, I think it's, it's uh, you know, this is certainly part of the Russian strategy. Uh, there is also, of course, the risk of a false flag operation. You know, they have all these conspiracy theories about uh, chemical weapons and that they, they were making them. And, uh, uh, you know, there are and even conspiracy theories that don't come necessarily explicitly from the Russian regime, but uh, that are that circulate on social media. Um, and, and there are a lot of people who buy into these conspiracy theories. Um, and we know that Russia invaded Ukraine, not because of something that uh, Ukrainians did, uh, but because of, of, of Putin's uh, imperialistic uh, drive. And, and, and I think that we certainly have to, uh, to fight back against Russia. And, and I agree with uh, that we should have uh, done that uh, uh, earlier on. Uh, and now we need to, to catch up and, and we need to be uh, really uh, to stand with the, uh, the Ukrainian people here. And, and I think that uh, there is uh, a need to increase our military spending. And our, our allies are actually have announced that already, including uh, Germany, the Netherlands, who spend about the same as we do, which is not enough. And they are beefing up military spending. I think we'll need to do that um, in the next federal budget. Daniel, since you brought up that point about NATO allies, let's talk about Trudeau and his cabinet ministers. Uh, last week, their visits to neighboring countries, uh, and I'll get the, your both of your opinions. Daniel, how effective was that? Well, you know, uh, uh, th- there is resolve on the, the part of, um, of, of NATO and, and our allies, um, but I, I think we, we uh, will need to... Uh, to intensify our, our efforts, and we need to, to spend uh, more money on this and spend uh, more weapons to uh, to Ukraine. And the problem with Canada is that we have, uh, you know, we have depleted our, our military over the years. Now, in recent years, the Trudeau government has spent a bit more on on on, on defense spending than um, you know in the in the recent past, but it's still uh, not enough. So we we actually. Uh, uh, need to uh, put the money where our, our mouth is, and, and that is uh, very important moving forward. We have an event tomorrow at the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada at 4 p.m., where we'll discuss the role of Canada in the uh, facing the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. So if you Google McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, you can register for free online at 4 p.m., and we have specialists of Ukraine, including of military history, will talk about the situation on the ground and what Canada can do about this. Excellent. Uh, Peter, your thoughts on Trudeau's visit last week? Well, it's critical. Uh, it's great to see that um, Canada is obviously uh, very engaged and involved and, and doing its part to, to uh, raise uh, everybody's awareness and support. Um, but again, it, it always comes down to um, yes, this is great, but uh, really, you have to move. I mean, every hour, every minute is critical. And we talk about false flag operation. Well, today, uh, there was further bombing. Actually, explosives were put at the nuclear plant in Zaporizhia. So Russians, it looks like they're, they're continuing to do damage there. If that nuclear reactor blows, it's six times the size of Chernobyl. Six times. Are we going to wait till tomorrow for a reaction for the West? Or are we going to see massive plume over Europe and everyone's going to be in horror? We had, a scare. we had a scare there to more at the beginning uh, of the war well, as today well. There, today there was actually explosives set off in that area. 
so it's not clear where, but it was by the nuclear plant. And as well, the cooling system in Chernobyl, which requires it, because obviously it could, it could, you could look at another possible meltdown. Apparently, the electricity has been cut off at Chernobyl as well. So again, this is not a, a, a Canada, uh, sorry, Ukraine problem. This is a world problem that could result in an international major catastrophe. So we talk about no-fly zone, nuclear war. Well, we can have a nuclear accident today. If, if the West does not react. Oh, I want to get details from you, Peter, before we wrap up on next Sunday's rally uh, organized by the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. Uh, but first to both of you, and just a couple of minutes left here, on Zelensky's leadership, uh, how he's doing and how important it is for the people of Ukraine, Daniel. Well, his leadership has been tremendous. He was uh, quite unpopular before uh, the Russian invasion uh, began, if you look at the public opinion polls. But now he's, uh, uh, he's extremely popular, not just at home, but internationally. He's become uh, really a model in terms of re- uh, resolve, not leaving uh, the capital, Kiev, staying there, uh, posting regularly about his whereabouts, but also uh, uh, really uh, pressuring uh, Western uh, countries and other countries around the world to to support Ukraine. And, and I think uh, his courage is really tremendous, and and that he's done a lot already. But we need to um, to support Ukraine to do even more, so that this leadership uh, becomes successful uh, in in stopping uh, stopping Russia. Because I agree that this is a major threat, uh, and not just for Ukraine or even Europe, but for the entire world. Peter, your thoughts on Volodymyr Zelensky? Well, he's going to go down in history as one of the only leaders um, in, in modern times to be able to put his life and his family's life on the line for his country. Uh, imagine if this were to happen in any other jurisdiction, how quickly would have the White House been evacuated into a bunker somewhere. Mr. Putin has not been seen in three weeks. Here we have a leader that every day, yesterday he actually walked to go visit a hospital where soldiers um, were recovering. Incredibly heroic. It'll go down in history. Tell us about uh, the plans for this Sunday, Peter. I know uh, the idea is to have an event every Sunday at two o'clock. Right, and we're working on it. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's an awful lot of work. We 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 try to do something different and and dynamic every uh, every week. So please stay tuned. It also depends on the developments in Ukraine. Uh, we say yes Sunday, but God forbid something would f- turn for the worse or something major happens. Uh, we we are ready to be mobilized in 24 hours. So please stay tuned to social media. Sunday two o'clock, we will have another event. And details would be on your website as well, uh, including ways to donate humanitarian aid to Ukraine at ucc.ca. Absolutely. Thank you. Peter, Daniel, thank you both for your time once again. You're most welcome. Thank you very much, Shane. Peter Storen is president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto branch, and Daniel Belland is professor and director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, it's been nice being with you over the last week, but Libby will be back tomorrow. She's looking forward to getting back here in the chair for Fight Back, and she will be joined by our strategy panelists. Up next, Bob Comsick and the News. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.